With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dan Gilbert runs a Midwestern empire. In Michigan, he founded Quicken Loans, which made him a billionaire. Now he's trying to rebuild Detroit. But you may know him as the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, LeBron James's NBA team. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. I went to Detroit in early May to meet with Gilbert after getting a tour of his properties downtown. All of his real estate is under a company called Bedrock, which is part of Gilbert's larger parent company called Rock Ventures. We sat down in a conference room in the Kobo Center after Gilbert gave a speech. We had some audio issues at the start, which is why it sounds different, but keep listening and it'll clear up. First, I asked Dan about his childhood, which included a pizza delivery business when he was 12 years old. Always trying to hustle this, hustle that, right? I, like you said, I, we started a Chef Boyardee pizza company out of my uh, kitchen. You'd buy those Chef Boyardees, you'd make them. we put flyers into all the mailboxes. My brother and his friends were 10 years old. I used to have them deliver the pizzas. And we'd make them. Then we got closed down by the health department in the city because we violated zoning laws. We violated um, health inspection laws. And we didn't know anything. So that was our first exposure to the regulatory environment that we now uh, deal with on a daily basis. That entrepreneurial spirit continued through college, where he became interested in real estate. Shortly after, he founded Quicken Loans. He got started in the business by getting his residential real estate license and becoming a mortgage broker. I said, uh, I'll go into one of these shared office suites, similar to what we work is today, like the, you know, but very much, much more boring, like just ugly gray walls and cubes that you would have shared office space. And it was like a 10 by 10 office. I said, I'll, I'll just try it for the summer, see what happens, broker some loans. And now it's, it'll be 33 years in June. Quicken Loans recently became the country's biggest mortgage lender. Gilbert says he was proud of not making subprime loans leading up to the financial crisis, which means they didn't give mortgages to people with bad credit scores. He says that as a result, they actually made money during the worst housing crisis ever. And it's not about the money. It's the fact that we're able to still be profitable in that environment. For all of your companies, you have this 140-page uh, book on corporate culture. Mm-hmm. It's more colorful than it sounds yep, yep. by that. Um, when did you first start collecting, as you call them, isms? Yeah, so we call them isms, which is our you know, 19, soon to be 20, cutesy little statements uh, that together combined define, as we like to say, who we are. Not what we do, but who we are. And it doesn't matter really what we do because that could change or, or additional things could be added. But it's, it's who we are, which guides decision-making, prioritization, your actions, your behaviors. And the way we got those things was not in one moment. 
it was literally over years you know maybe we started with with three or four i can't remember exactly but it was observation of human behavior and what we think works and what we think will drive people to be the kind of business we wanted to be what's interesting is if you read any really the book of any successful highly successful i would say organization or business they refer to what we call isms they won't call them that and they may not be exactly the same but like 80 percent of them are the same i think that a lot of people come to that it's like a discoverable thing it's like so einstein didn't make up relativity he discovered it i sort of view it the same way what would you say is the main takeaway from all of these well i think it's impossible especially in today's world to grow a substantial company significantly in size anyway company without having guiding principles because here's the thing if you're the principal and you started it you run into something called 24 hours which means you can only be around theoretically for 24 hours obviously not that much but but that's it so if you want to grow that means that there has to be other people from top to bottom and across who are going to stand in and be sort of who you would be and answer questions or, or make decisions. So how do you do that? You can't legislate or you can't codify every single circumstance of the world of what you would do, but you can codify principles so that whatever comes, you, you would hopefully make decisions and, 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 and actions, prioritizations in line with those. How many companies are within Rock Ventures at this point? That's a good question because it's a little bit vague. Tell you why it's a little bit vague because sometimes you know we we have situations where we have anything from where we own a hundred percent of it to five or seven or ten, but we do sort of help them operate and control some of our investments. But overall, I'd say ones that we're really in the family where we're sort of influencing and trying to get them to adopt our, our culture. Fly it's probably close to a hundred. And so is this culture the isms is that a way to keep them all connected yeah i mean it's one way for sure and let me tell you that's not an easy thing that's not an easy it's not even an easy thing within the flagship business and it's not even an easy thing when you're pounding the table on that's who we are so you know human nature is not one of um even if they love them even if you ask people individually hey what do you think i like the ism i believe in them so you made this decision that's not in line with this oh you know i didn't really i didn't so you got there's like two steps. Number one is you have to get people to adopt them. If you if they won't or if they don't like them or if they think something, then just forget it. But even if they do, the second step is how do you get them to look through the lens of these when they make decisions, when they choose their priorities? And so it's a it's a way. Hopefully, you know, if more and more it's sort of a momentum thing, the more and more people that do, it gains momentum, and then others will do it as well. Yeah. And at what point did you realize that you wanted to have? this giant portfolio of businesses and real estate? You know, I'll tell you who asked me that question all the time, and but in an increasingly uh, irritated tone, and that would be my wife. And what I tell her is that um, I don't necessarily go out and seek, you know, let's go out and seek all these new and, and do these things. There's a na- there's sort of a natural way these things happen. Like you, you have a successful business, you have some successful people. They want to go out on their own and create a business that makes sense, that's connected to your business, how do you say no to them? You say no to them, you're going to lose them. you got to be partners with them. They're growing up in an entrepreneurial environment that they see. So some of it is sort of this organic, natural, or most of it, frankly, is this organic, natural way. And so it's, the answer to your question is not like we, I, I want to have 100 companies. It's, not, it's more of just, you know, you look at each one individually. Does it make sense? Do we have the capacity? Do we have the capital? Do we have the right talent? And, and do we take a shot at it or not? 
And what was it like when you finally became an owner of a sports team with the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2005? Well, it was a shock. First of all, it was a shock for a lot of reasons. It was a shock. I can't believe this actually happened. You, you start going to games and you go, you forget. You think you're a fan. You just, oh, I actually own this team. It's weird. So, and it even happens to me to this day, actually. Crazy sometimes. Like, sometimes you know less than some of the fans because – you know, the way, you know, there's a culture thing that's maybe a little different in sports, although we think ours is getting better and better. So you read, sometimes I'll read something in the paper and I'll call up our guy. Did, is that, you know, Kobe, that's our general manager. Is that, did, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Okay, thanks. Next, just let me know. <laughs> um, but I, I think that the shock of it is some of the media, frankly, it's all public. And that's a different thing, too. You're in a fishbowl, which is different yep. than anything else. I, I mean, the biggest example of that was in... 2010 when you mm-hmm. wrote a public letter yeah. after uh lebron decided uh, to announce publicly that he was going to mm-hmm. miami right um he would eventually come back to cleveland and yep. win a championship in 2016 how do you see that letter in retrospect well first of all the letter wasn't pu- the letter was to our fans of cleveland so and in this letter to be clear this is it was saying that we don't need LeBron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there were some things that I, you know, just stupid things. I wouldn't say them again. I mean, just for my own sake and everybody else's sake. Right. So, what was interesting at the time is that the people in Cleveland. I have a binder this this thick, right? Where because they, and it wasn't even really about. It was about LeBron, but but really the message was about. And I felt it. I'm with you, Cleveland. Because Cleveland had been beaten up man economically and then the, the, they're the losing city in sports and they hadn't won a championship at that time this he was one of the you know they considered him one of their own they still do um so it was more for them about wow this guy came in from the outside and he feels you know loyalty and we feel you know and not that it was intentional to do that but that's that's how it sort of came out um but then you get outside of Cleveland and they, you know, in the media, they just took that. They still use it to this day. So there's certain things, you know, whether you're telling a kid today, don't put something online because it's not like when I grew up, you know, it's there forever. And so especially you don't know that or think that to yourself. Maybe not even back in 2010. I certainly thought it in 2011 and moving forward. So <laughs> you got to watch what you put online electronically. It's there forever. Last question about that. Why do you use Comic Sans? First of all, it's I had as a sort of as a joke. This is a true story. As a joke, a few weeks before, I had changed or somebody had changed my email to comics, and it just happened to be still there. There was no intention. I mean, that really that was like putting lighter fluid on the on the fire. Like, and it had not, there was nothing, no hidden message. It just was there. Believe me, I'm not a big comic sans user. <laughs> Uh, well, what have you learned about working with LeBron, about working with someone who also is a, a powerful leader and has a powerful personality? When you have a unique talent, like LeBron's case, the best player in the world, that's one out of six billion people, right? One out of six billion people possess and have the kind of talent he has on a basketball court, right? So there, there's really in that situation, although legally he may be working for our organization, but that's not really the case. I mean, he's more of your partner, really. I think it's important that whether it's him or anybody like that, and and if you're in the entertainment business, too, same thing. Let's say there's a you're the tour promoter, right? And you're a tour promoter, and there's a famous singer, rock band, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's not like they're working for you. You're, you have to be partners and stuff. So I think that. The more communication you have, um, the more you get on the same page. Again, like we were talking about the isms philosophically, it just becomes so much easier. And then also the trust level. It's important to have a trust level 
because you can get swayed by the he said she said the media said the agent said the front office guy said you gotta the more layers you have between yourselves the more open for misinterpretation and things to go bad so we're here in detroit talking about the way that your company bedrock Mm -hmm. has been leading so much development here you've also done a lot of development in cleveland why are you so passionate about this well, Detroit and Cleveland are a little bit of different stories. So, so Detroit is—I mean, it's my hometown, fourth generation. You just—you you start going around the country and talking to other people, and you realize, even though I was born in the city and lived there the first few years and grew up—I don't know—a couple of miles from the city border. But the reputation and the the damage that your own city, you know, has that, that you're from, that your DNA is from. I mean, at least I, I say to myself, if we're in a position to to impact and make a difference. That would be a great thing to be able to do it. It's the city that needs all kinds of, of help, and you have a big employee base, and maybe it's great for business. It turned out to be great for business. I don't think we would have ever been able to be the company we are not being together in a campus-like setting in an urban core like Detroit. When did you have this shift of thought where it was going to be, I'm having my business in Detroit to also, I'm not only going to have my business here, but I'm going to transform the city as well? Well, here, here's the view. So if we were going to go to Detroit and treat the building, let's say the first building we went into, as we would treat a suburban building, which is the following, is go, park, go in, come, park, leave. Then we might as well stay in the suburbs. There's no reason to do it. So it was a dual mission from the start. We didn't now do we know how much we would do or how many buildings would become available or how fast we would move our people down or how much that we needed so much more hiring to do all those sort of came after so that part was fortunate but i always said from the beginning if we're not going down there to impact and help that city not really we can't let's just stay in the suburbs so that's the reason originally and then looking at ohio you ended up getting a movement where the state constitution was amended right for your casino there was a, it was a uh, general referendum, so it's a vote of all the citizens of Ohio over the 18 years, over 18 years old of age. Is that when you vote? Although you can't get a drink. <laughs> no. So, so Yeah, could you explain the, what happened there? Yeah. There's a natural sort of opportunistic thing that happens where one thing leads to another, leads to another. So now we have the Cavaliers. Things are going pretty good. We see this opportunity. We feel like we could impact things. The way we did the casinos was it wasn't a, a license to put a casino anywhere. It had it tied the constitutional amendment that we proposed to citizens of Ohio was tying a specific piece of land to a casino license. So it was urban core downtown. And you know, that we said, Hey, if that happens, this should be good. We're in the entertainment business there anyway. Ohio needs the tax money. Clearly there could be wealth built out of this, it may lead to other things, it create jobs, the whole thing, and so we, we I want 54 to 46, I guess, percent. I had a chance earlier to go through downtown, and it's striking how big Bedrock's influence is in the city. What do you feel when you're either walking around or driving around? Well, first of all, I want to walk around more and drive around, but they want these like these ladies here at this table won't let me because I always say I got to do stuff. So, you know, <laughs> like this, <laughs> and um. Like, I wake up every day to go to work just like I did in 1985 when we started. It's just like, yeah, there's just more stuff and all that. But I, I don't ever – it's rare that I think, wow, we, you know, I just – because you're so focused on, you know, just the next thing, getting things done, doing the right thing, pushing the buttons where you need to push and all that. So 
I do at times, you know, feel like, wow, we're, we're on a noble mission. In fact, we use this term now that we've coined. I don't know how much public, we probably said it a few times, right? But so you have profit making companies and you have nonprofits. So we coined this term of late called a more than profit. And I think what that means is it probably doesn't mean what people initially think it means. Okay. What it means is that you could have a dual mission and that there, our belief is not only is there not a conflict between that, between, you know, impacting things positively in the community and profits, there's actually a positive correlation. In other words, the more you give to the community, the more good things you make happen. Actually, at the end of the day, the more profits your company will make. So that's the way I believe. Last year, there was a relatively small incident, but it's a good representation of something that happens with a big transformation in Detroit. It was a bedrock ad that said, see Detroit like we do. It featured only young white people. And this is in a city that was 80% of the population is black and most people working class. And critics of yours would say that the new changes just cater to an upper middle class and that would be mostly white people. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I would say the, the ones who, who say that they're, they're not informed and they don't know all the facts and information and they're focusing on a very small, not small, but a very small part of everything that happens, which is a mistake. Now, here, here's the thing. Every organization, and especially bigger one, the bigger you are and the more things you're doing, there's just going to be something that happens. Now, what happened that day that very few people reported on was the contractor that was hired to put these, what were they, they were like fatheads or, you know, across the whole thing. He started on, on a Friday afternoon, put up a few of them, and then Monday morning was going to put up the rest of them. Unfortunately, the pictures he put up were, as you described, and then there was much more diversity in the ones that did not get put up. But when the thing, you know, they were going slated for Monday morning, and then when the thing blew up over the weekend, sort of a separate thing is I believe the companies blow it when they don't. You blow it, you come out, and you say you blew it. People get it. There's nothing more to say after that point. We blew it. And we said it, and we took responsibility, and we fixed it. It wasn't bad intentions, but they just weren't thinking because most people will take it the way, you know, the bad way you could take that. So we fixed that, too, over the weekend. So what do you say to critics who are saying that, oh, if you look in the outer neighborhoods outside of downtown, that uh, these changes aren't affecting them? Yeah, that's just completely false. The entire unemployment rate of Detroit before we right before we got there maybe the first year we were there was like 24 5 percent is now down to seven that is a massive you know difference number number two is when we moved downtown in 2010 there were about four we we, we keep track of this about 42 of our employees lived within the city limits now it's over four thousand. i said our human resources go do me a favor plug on a map dots of where all of our people live if they live in the city of detroit so you take a city of detroit map now i'm, I'm expecting almost 100% or 90% to be around downtown. Well, when you look at that map, it's all over the city, which, which I had not go back three times. That can't be right, but it is right. So let's put it this way. You can't have anything good happen in neighborhoods without an economic productivity and job creation, which generally is in the central core. Now, there are some neighborhood, you know, coffee shop and you have, you know, whatever it is that you may know, neighborhood like type stuff. But the, the core of the kinds of jobs I think that matter in a big way that impact things are going to typically be in a downtown if it's a major urban core because you can go vertical. You're not going to build skyscrapers in, you know, in the neighborhoods. So we, we've been involved in neighborhoods. We, we give more capital to neighbors. Our people, I'll give you another story of something that we do. So there's Detroit Public Schools 
got to a point because of their lack of funds and, and probably management that was not the best in the world at the time where anybody who graduated Detroit public schools, usually you go for a job interview. Apparently they ask for your transcripts of your high school. Okay. They couldn't provide it. I mean, they got to a point where they shoved this stuff in a, like a, an acre of filing cabinets, never put it on a system. We took a year long project down for free, of course. And we sent about 300 people a week. They rotate to scan in all the diplomas going back to like 1950 on a, on a technology platform we built for them. And now pretty much everybody who graduated Detroit public schools can get their transcripts now. So, and we, and, and not to mention all the, the, the increasing amount of neighborhood stuff that we're, we're doing that a lot of it's associated with our financing, you know, quick and loans. We figured out some real interesting things that we could do. What we call a rehab and ready program. Property taxes is the culprit of, of what caused not just property taxes, the method that they assess properties, the amount of mills, the, the misinformation and lack of communication to citizens, you know, the fact that landlords would buy homes cheap, charge the tenant all kinds of money, and then never pay the taxes. We have a whole program for that where we actually go in and pay the taxes. We'll give like the uh, tenant like three, four, five years at zero interest. Pass. Once they pass back, we give them the keys. There's all these like creative things you can do. I don't know if there's anybody or any entity, governmental or non-governmental, is more active in the neighborhoods than we are. And I don't like to go around like bragging about it. Maybe that's our problem. But I, I think, look, we care deeply about the neighborhoods. And we don't think it can be – we don't think our – we just think it's all on the same – we're on the same side. of. The, there's no way businesses can be successful by having really bad neighborhoods in a successful downtown. It just doesn't work that way. I guess to that point, what is your ultimate vision for Detroit? Is this a lifelong project? Projects come to an end, right? So I guess I would call it a process. And I say, what if somebody asked you, uh, how will you know if your family's successful? That's kind of a, it's a weird question because you don't really think of it in those terms. You say, well, if everybody's healthy and we're all going in the right direction, you know, and we hope you know, we're just getting better as people and as in our relationships into the future. I, I, it's a city's the same thing. As long as things are headed in the right direction. I mean, one day you'll maybe gain a little bit and one day you'll have a breakthrough. Maybe one day you'll to a step backwards, but you all know ultimately, you know, I think the problem with Detroit and, and other places and companies and nonprofits that have deteriorated, it's not that the outside things that are happening, it's that their DNA or their culture, their methodology, their, it's broken on the inside. And so we... I would say as long as Detroit, the current path is light years compared to where it was. And I think for the vast majority of the things you would say, are we in the right direction? Absolutely. But I think more importantly, the the trust level, the relationships, the fact that people are, we use this term noble purposes. There's not, there's always a handful of people here and there that aren't. But overall, I think the purposes of most of the people involved in bringing Detroit back are noble. And so then the sky becomes a limit. What would you say to someone in Detroit who may be wary of you as a business person having so much power in the city? Well, it's not the fact that, that somebody has so much power. You could have less power. It's the what are you going to do with it type of thing, right? So if you have somebody that has power, me or anybody else, and they're doing good things, that's great. If, if somebody has any kind of power and they're doing amoral, unethical, bad things, then it's not good. So I would hope after eight years almost and everything that we're doing, um, which I think is, you know, again, I don't want to look like I'm tooting our horns here, but, you know, it's sort of unprecedented. They would have some kind of trust level. I, at least I personally have a three pronged 
mantra almost, okay? That is, okay, we're going to positively impact as many people in our communities as possible. We're going to have fun doing it and build wealth in the process. And the reason for number three, because the more I can make a number three, the more of one and two we can do. Hey, everybody wins, in my opinion. And taking a look at the entirety of your career, how do you personally define success? Well, that's a great question. Got to think about that one. I mean, I think it's different for each person individually. So there's no setting. There's a lot of ways people can do it. And I think whatever way, you know, anybody does, as long as it's not treading on somebody else, that, that that's fine, right? But for me, it's, and it wasn't always this way because I don't think as a normal entrepreneur, you're, you you think in these terms. But I think what I said to you earlier, man, if I can positively impact as many people as possible and have fun at the same time, and we can do well by doing good and we spread this culture and philosophy and and people understand that wealth is created by human beings, not by zebras or elephants, but by humans and the decisions and choices they make on a daily basis. And I guess I'll say the biggest thing is we can put hope and belief into human beings, the more human beings that they can do things and accomplish good things they never really thought possible. The more I can do that, I would feel more successful. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to have a career like yours? Is an entre- like an entrepreneurial career? Yeah. Well, one of our biggest isms, well, they're all, we think they're all important, but one of them is money and numbers follow, they do not lead. And I think for some reason, whether the business schools or maybe it's just more natural, I think a lot of times entrepreneurs come out the other way. Well, you know, how do I make, you know, making money is a byproduct. No, I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis, and our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. Give us five stars. It really helps people find us. We'll be back next week with another interview of success.